This is the fourth <clears throat> lecture on Machen and the Presbyterian controversy and thinking about uh, why, what formed Machen as a fighter. That was sort of the theme of the first three lectures. Today, uh, we turn to a series on what Machen actually fought, what he contested. Um, and the topic for this lecture is ecumenism, which is also adjacent to the social gospel, which is also adjacent to Christian nationalism, um, which is not typically what people think about when they think about the social gospel or Protestant ecumenism. But just to tie it in with the previous lecture, we were talking about Machen, his experience in the war, the crisis of the West, uh, and the way that the war disillusioned at least some intellectuals. Uh, and I believe Machen began to think about the world in crisis in ways that he hadn't prior to the war. Um, and again, just to go back, I don't want to make this a recurring theme throughout the lecture, but since I've been thinking about the, the article by Aaron Wren in First Things about the, um, the different worlds of evangelicalism and how evangelicals relate to the world after, say, uh, the Clinton presidency, um, uh, we're now living in a, in, in a negative world, this, this article in First Things argues, and I think there's something useful for, for making that case, that there really has been a change in America after 2014 with regard to uh, perceptions of, of the church, perceptions of Christianity. But if you think about the negative world that Machen would have been living in, or at least the way he thought the world was becoming more negative, more hostile to the church in the first three decades of the 20th century, it may put that, that negative world of today, of 2014 and beyond, in perspective. <clears throat> so, Machen was worried about the world. So what are you going to do about it? Well, he didn't have much time to think about it because in 1920, he went to his first General Assembly as a commissioner. I believe that was probably also the first General Assembly he attended, and for anyone who's been a commissioner or a delegate to a, an assembly or a synod, um, it is a chance to see, in some ways, how the sausage is made, as they say, and it's not always a pleasant uh, thing to see. And this was certainly true for Machen in 1920. And this is another reason, by the way, of high, in highlighting 1920, it's a way of saying that the controversy in which Machen participated was a Presbyterian controversy, not the fundamentalist controversy. Typically, when people think about the beginning of the fundamentalist controversy, they think about 1922 and a famous sermon by Harry Emerson Fosdick, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? And I'll say more about that in a lecture or two. I can't keep all of these lectures straight in my mind at this point. Um, <clears throat> but 1920 is when the controversy begins for Machen and his colleagues at Princeton Seminary. So what happened in 1920? Well, in 1920, there was a proposal presented to the assembly, which met in Philadelphia, for a, a plan for the organic union of evangelical churches in the United States. And I'll read from the preamble. Whereas we desire to share a common heritage, as a common heritage, the faith of the Christian church, which has from time to time found expression in great historic statements. And, whereas we all share belief in God our Father, 
in Christ Je Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Savior, in the Holy Spirit, our guide and comforter, in the Holy Catholic Church, through which God's eternal purpose of salvation is to be proclaimed, and the kingdom of God is to be realized on earth. In the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments is containing God's revealed will, and in the life eternal. So that was sort of the creedal statement of this plan, what I just mentioned there, belief in the Trinity, belief in the kingdom of God, belief in the Old and New Testaments, as containing God's revealed world, uh, God's revealed will, excuse me. They go on to say, whereas having the same spirit, owning the same Lord, we nonetheless recognize diversity of gifts and ministration for whose exercise due freedom must always be afforded in forms of worship and in modes of operation. Okay, so that's the boilerplate clearing of the throat. Now they come to the plan. Now we, the church, is here to ascending as here and after. <laughs> here to ascending as here and after. That's great language of church union. Provided in Article 4, do hereby agree to associate ourselves in a visible body known as the United Churches of Christ in America for the furtherance of the redemptive work of God in the world, this body shall exercise in behalf of the constituent church the functions delegated to it by this instrument. So this was going to be a plan of organic. Organic union is important to, uh, to see here. Um, they try to recognize diversity of the different denominations are going to participate in it. This, is a, this was a plan for the largest mainline denomination, so it would bring Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, Congregationalists, Episcopalians, Lutherans into one big organic union, trying to recognize the diversity of those groups. But still, this is an age of union. This is an age of efficiency. Um, and it's not efficient to have so many different churches doing different things. Let's work together in a common cause. Um, Machen himself preached at a union church that was sort of one of the uh, manifestations of this union spirit at the um, at the Congregational Church or the church, the Union Church in Seal Harbor, Maine, where his family vacationed. Um, so Machen was not unfamiliar with these with these churches, was willing to participate in some way, although over time he gave reasons in a letter to John Rockefeller why he would not preach anymore at that Union Church. This came later in the 1920s. But what's important to see about this organic union is that it's not a federal union. There had been a federal union of these churches that came from 1908 with the formation of the Federal Council of Churches. And federalism, a lot of Americans don't understand what federalism is, although during COVID, I think we understood more that states had certain powers that the federal government didn't have or the federal government may have been unwilling to use. There was a lot of variety in, in responses to COVID, thanks to a federal system. But this federal union from in the Council of Churches of 1908 was to bring together the churches into a kind of federal system like the United States of America, recognizing each denomination as still having its powers, its authority in certain respects, but going to pull together in other respects. So it was a federal union. But what was planned with this organic union of 1920 was a one-church solution. We're going to be one church of America. And this is precisely what happened in Canada 
1925 with the United Church of Canada that brought Anglicans, Methodists, and Presbyterians together into one body. And what always happens with church union is that it doesn't bring all the churches together into one, it actually just creates one more church because there were Anglicans, Methodists, and Presbyterians that stayed out of that union. So the United Church of Christ, sorry, United Church of Canada became one more Canadian church. <clears throat> um, now, in the case of this organic union, it, it failed in America, but still it's important to see what was happening in 1920, that this was the last stage of an endeavor to create more union among American Protestants that went back to the end of the Civil War. Uh, this church union had been going on for um, 50 years, and 1920 was the culmination of it. Someone could argue that Machen was coming way too late to this controversy. People should have been standing up and taking notice before this. Um, <clears throat> now, why did people want to be united? One was, of course, that's what Christ prayed for. He prayed that his followers would be one. But a much bigger concern to the people who promoted church union or interdenominational cooperation was that these, these Protestants were worried about the fate of their country. And, and so union oftentimes goes along with nationalism. Um, union often also happens typically after war. Uh, and so the beginnings of this endeavor for church union can really be dated back to the end of the Civil War when the United States fought a war to preserve the Union. Yes, it was also to fought to end slavery, but at the beginning of the war, it was to preserve the Union. So <clears throat> ecumenism, uh, in the American experience at least, goes with the social gospel, responding to the needs of society, which also goes with trying to preserve the Christian character of the United States. And you see this particularly in the plan of union that the old school and new school branches in the North signed on to in 1869. This is an amazing uh, statement, part of the statement of this plan of union. And here I'll, I'll quote from that plan. 1869, the changes which have occurred in our country and throughout the world during the last 30 years, the period of our separation. So this is a this is a plan to bring back together two wings of the church that had separated in 1837 over questions of subscription, over questions of church polity, over questions of cooperation with parachurch agencies during the so-called second pretty good awakening. So, so that's the period of our separation. These changes arrest and compel attention. Within this time, the original number of our states has been very nearly doubled. And all this vast domain is to be supplied with the means of education and the institu institutions of religion as the only source and protection of our national life. Notice right away, they're thinking about this union of the church in terms of the nation. This is the church in service of the nation. The population crowding into this immense area, the plan goes on, is heterogeneous. Six million of immigrants representing various religious, religious and nationalities, have arrived on our shores within the last 30 years. And four millions of slaves, recently enfranchised, demand Christian education. It is no secret that anti-Christian forces, Romanism, 
ecclesiasticism, rationalism, infidelity, materialism, and paganism itself, assuming new vitality or struggling for the ascendancy. Christian forces should be combined and deployed according to the new movements of their adversaries. It is no time for small and weak detachments, which may be easily defeated in detail. So there's the threats to the nation. The churches need to respond to those threats. They need to unify to respond to those threats. These aren't threats to the church. They are threats to the church, but they're also threats to the nation. We're going to save the nation. The the plan goes on. Before the world, we are now engaged as a nation in solving the problem, whether it is possible for all the incongruous and antagonistic nationalities thrown upon our shores, exerting their mutual attraction and repulsion, to become fused into one new American sentiment, as if the church is designed to create American sentiment. If the several branches of the Presbyterian Church, it goes on, in this country, representing to a degree, a great de- degree, ancestral differences should become cordially united. It must have not only a direct effect upon the question of our national unity, but reacting by the force of a successful example on the old world must render aid in that direction to all who are striving to consi- reconsider and readjust those combinations which had their origin either in the faults or in the necessities of a remote past. It's kind of a long-winded and wordy way of saying that the United, if the United States church, churches can unite, it will be an example to Europe so that they, those churches can also unite and fight back against these alien forces threatening to undermine Christian civilization in Europe and North America. What's also striking about this, and I didn't include it in the notes that I printed out, part of this plan also talks about the Reformation in ways that the Reformation came at a time, yes, when doctrine was needed, and so therefore separation, division may have been in order, but our time is no longer like that. We don't need those same kinds of concerns as the Reformation. It's a remarkable statement on how the current moment and responding to the crisis that these Protestants perceived causes you to view the past, the Reformation, in this case, in a very different way. So these are part of the reasons for thinking about the social gospel, which is responding to the needs of America as being bound up with ecumenism, bringing churches together, rallying them together for this cause, and also trying to preserve Christianity in the United States. So remember what some of those threats to America were. One of those, just coming around the corner in 1870, is the First Vatican Council, which declares formally that the Pope is infallible. And for the last 20 years in America, Roman Catholics have been having a greater presence that's going to increase after 1870 with the waves of immigration that come between 1870 and 1920. So that's one threat. Uh, Protestants, to their credit, maybe not for the right reasons, were opposed to Roman Catholicism at this point. They were also concerned about secularism, meaning disregard for the Sabbath, disregard for home, disregard for uh, temperance or moderate use of alcohol, even prohibition. They were concerned about materialism. These were, this was science leaving out ethical and spiritual considerations. They were concerned about communism. Labor unions were, were beginning to uh, take on greater roles. There were 
workers' riots in the 1870s, 80s, and 90s, so there was a fear of organizing those labor movements into something that was going to be uh, radical. <clears throat> They're very much concerned about family values, Ch child labor, people, children working in factories, women in motherhood understanding their proper roles in the home and the proper roles of domesticity in the home. These are all things that these Protestants wanted to f either fight back on or preserve. And in many respects, um, much of their social program would have been quite agreeable, say, even to Orthodox Presbyterians getting way ahead of the story in the, in the late 1930s. But they were also doing this at the expense of the teachings of the church, the teachings of Scripture. So after the Civil War, first comes, well, come a series of interdenominational or church union endeavors. In 1867, there is the formation of the Evangelical Alliance, which is somewhat ecclesiastical, but individuals can join. Non-church organizations can join this. It's, a, it's the American expression of something formed in England. Um, <clears throat> in 1869, there is the reunion of the Old and New School branches in the Northern Presbyterian Church. In 1875, there's the formation of the World Alliance of Reformed Churches. So Protestants in North America are beginning to cooperate with Protestants in the United Kingdom and Europe, trying to advance this. Philip Schaff, who's a professor of church history at Union Seminary now, a German Reformed, becomes Presbyterian, is, is orchestrator of some of these union endeavors between Europeans and Americans. There's a Presbyterian Alliance formed in 1877, this is a way to get Presbyterians who wouldn't join the Evangelical Alliance because it had Arminians or Baptists in it. It's okay, we'll try to include those Presbyterians in this Presbyterian Alliance. <clears throat> the next stage of this de uh, union development comes with creedal revision, the reason why the Presbyterian Church USA revises its creed in 1903 and adds a chapter on the Holy Spirit and, and missions is to soften the Calvinism in the Westminster Standards, which leads then three years later to a reunion, sorry, a union with the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. The Cumberland Presbyterian Church was a church that left the PCUSA in 1810, basically because it was an Arminian Presbyterian Church. They removed the, the Calvinistic teachings of the Westminster Confession for their, for their own standards. So now there's a union with that church in 1906, which again then leads to the Federal Council of Churches in 1908. So this is just one repeated effort of union after another. And it's really quite striking to think about the way that historians have covered this period between 1870 and 1920. They see growing division, liberals versus conservatives, higher criticism, Darwinism, these different forces that are antagonizing each part of the church. But the, I think the much bigger story here is union. And the greater cooperation that's going on among all white Protestants in America. So quite noticeably, one of the first things, if not the first thing the Federal Council of Churches does in 1908 is to come out with a program statement of the social gospel. They come out with the social creed of the churches. This is really what they called it, the social creed of the churches. Um, <clears throat> and here's... It's a short creed. It's about a 13-point creed. Um, and I'll read through at least some of this. 
uh, we deem it the duty of all Christian people to concern themselves directly with certain practical industrial problems. Creed of the church, addressing industrial problems. So first of all, for equal rights and complete justice for all men in all stage, stations of life. Nothing, nothing modest about that. <clears throat> for the right of all men to the opportunity for self-maintenance, a right ever to be wisely and strongly safeguarded against encroachments of every kind, for the right of workers to some protection against the hardships often resulting from swift crises of industrial change, for the principle of conciliation and arbitration in industrial dissensions, for the protection of the worker from dangerous machinery, occupational disease, injuries, and mortality. Again, this is a creed of the churches. For the abolition of child labor, for such regulation of the conditions of toil for women, excuse me, as shall be self, safe, as shall safeguard the physical and moral health of the community. <clears throat> and it goes on. About six more points. I won't need to go through all of them. They're very much responding to a very difficult situation in American economic, business, political history of increasing wealth gap between workers in industrial settings and the owners, the industrialists in these settings. It's a serious problem. The churches feel that they need to respond. And they come out with a creed to do it in the course in the in the in the course of this first meeting of the Federal Council of Churches. So, if you want to see ecumenism, example of ecumenism, and social gospel working hand in hand, there's no better place, I think, than to look at the Federal Council, 1908, in the social creed of the church. So that's the development that's leading to 1920 with this plan for organic union. Just one more stage in trying to unite the Protestant churches in America. Now, the person who presents, back to the General Assembly of 1920, the person who presents this report, this plan for union, to the General Assembly is none other than, wait for it, the Princeton of Princeton, sorry, the president of Princeton Theological Seminary, J. Ross Stevenson. That's not a happy moment in the history of Princeton Seminary. Because the faculty overwhelmingly line up against this. And in the, in the magazine, The Presbyterian, which was a conservative publication, came out weekly, <clears throat> going way back into the 19th century, published in Philadelphia. Uh, several uh, Princeton faculty wrote uh, in opposition to this plan of union. Uh, C.W. Hodge, William Brenton Green, Machen, and Warfield all wrote against this. So... There's, there's a brewing controversy at Princeton already in 1920 as well. And again, spoiler alert, but everybody knows this story probably, Westminster Seminary is the culmination of that fight where conservatives lose, at least Machen loses. Um, but it begins here in 1920. Another reason for thinking about Machen as fighting in a Presbyterian controversy, not in a, <clears throat> in a specifically fundamentalist controversy. Machen makes much more sense in responding to what's happening in the Presbyterian world, the Presbyterian church. So, um, just to give you an example of the faculty's reaction to this plan, B.B. Um, <clears throat> Warfield, one of the last pieces that he would write, wrote this in September of 1920, um, the one article that he wrote about this for the Presbyterian he died 
roughly five months later, in February of 1921, uh, he writes about this plan. It is perfectly obvious that the proposed creed contained nothing which is not believed by evangelicals. And it is equally obvious that it contains nothing which is not believed by sacerdotalists, by the adherents of the Church of Rome, for example. And it is equally obvious that it contains nothing which is not believed by rationalists, by respectable Unitarians, say, for example. That is as much to say the creed on the basis of which we are invited to form a union for evangelizing purposes contains nothing distinctively evangelical at all, nothing at all of that body of saving truth for the possession of which the Church of Christ has striven and suffered through 2,000 years. It contains only a few starved and hunger-bitten dogmas of purely general character, if, if, if infinite importance in the context of evangelical truth, but of themselves of no saving sufficiency. Sorry, of infinite importance in the context of evangelical truth, but of themselves of no saving sufficiency. So it's just a very incredibly reduced set of dogmas that really don't amount to anything. <clears throat> he goes on to write, there is nothing about justification by faith in this creed, and that means that all the gains obtained in that great religious movement which we call the Reformation are cast out of the window. We are willing to treat the fundamental principles of the Reformation as no longer necessary to be professed and taught. There is nothing about the, the atonement in the blood of Christ in this creed. And that means that the whole gain of the long medieval search after truth is thrown summarily aside. Uh, so far as this creed tells us, there might be no such thing as sin in the world. And of course, if that is the case, there is no such thing as grace. Machen himself also wrote three articles against this, especially going after the, um, the, de the declaration in this uh, plan for organic union. Um, and Machen made a strong case for why the Presbyterian Church should avoid the, the Union, um, which, of course, it did, because the plan overall was a colossal failure. It needed a lot of money. It didn't get the money it needed. But again, this period of 1920, or this year of 1920, is the beginning of this Presbyterian controversy in which Machen will be a, a chief actor. And again, as I suggested earlier in the lecture, it, it, is, it does raise questions about what Presbyterians were doing during this time. Um, I have, I, I wrote some time ago an article about Presbyterian reactions to ecumenism, and Princeton faculty were actually voicing objections to the stages of greater interdenominational cooperation. Um, they were they were voices. Uh, Warfield himself was a great opponent of um, the revision of the Westminster Confession, which went through a variety of stages. It began in the 1890s. At first, it was successfully defeated, and, but then it, it finally passed in 1903. So it's not as if there weren't conservatives that were voicing concerns, but there was no real larger movement. And, and so Machen coming along when he did is admirable, courageous for standing up when he did, but one could well argue that it was much too little too late.
but it's still a lot to happen in the 1920s. So I'll stop there for now, and um, I, I would take questions, but I, I can't take questions, so I'll stop.